morning, everyone. It's about as cute as it gets. We're glad that you've joined us today. As uh, Ethan mentioned, we're in a message series. We're looking at uh, God's famous last words recorded in the final book of the Bible, the book of Revelation. Now, this is a big week for us as a nation. Uh, the day is almost here. On Tuesday, we get to go to the polls and vote. Now, that is a privilege that most people throughout human history have not had. And I have to be honest that usually for me, by the time I finally get to vote, uh, I tend to be more irritated by the process than grateful for the privilege. And that's because, in part, for months now, we have just been inundated with, well, signs on every corner of our city. I mean, our city is just, I mean, especially with the winds that came through, it's just, there's trash everywhere, just political signs everywhere. And then our mailboxes. Uh, I mean, now it's, it's you know, about, about 20 pieces of mail per one piece of mail that I'm interested in. And so our mailboxes are just filled up with all kinds of flyers and political statements. And Now, these, these flyers, they're not logical, well-thought-out explanations of the propositions that we are going to be voting on or the candidates that we're going to be voting on. I mean, no one would take the time to, to read a paragraph thoughtfully constructed, and so everybody knows this. And so we're given instead, we're given statements of accusation, we're given statements of fear, we're given smiling politicians promising to make our lives better. So I thought I'd show you just a few of the flyers that uh, you're probably well aware of these. Th these came to my house. They probably came to your house as well. Here's the, the first one. This is on Prop 10, which is about rent control. So here's some guy <laughs> that if I don't vote right, apparently is going to come and have a serious conversation with me. <laughs> so now I, I understand why Proposition 10 on rent control is a bad idea for homeowners. I understand why it's a good idea for, for renters. But as a homeowner, if, if I decide to vote yes um, on Prop 10, is this guy in a trench coat really going to come knock on my door? Am I, am, I, am I in trouble if I vote wrong? I mean, that's kind of the impression. That someone's going to come take my house if I vote yes on this. Well, here's the next one. Um, this is um, put out by the Huntington Beach Firefighters Association. Apparently, they're backing a couple of candidates for uh, city council. And I, I'm not sure, it doesn't really say, but my guess is that these candidates are being backed because they're probably for uh, pay increases for the firefighters and probably protecting pensions. Um, all of that's fine, but th the question based on that, they're saying, are, are, are there, you know, they're there for families, are, are, you know, are you going to vote for them? Because if not, are, are they going to be there? And so the question again is, so if, if, I, if I vote wrong and I have to call 911, are they not going to be there? I mean, it's, is the fire department going to be shut down? Or, or are they going to create a list of people that voted against these two candidates? And I call 911, they do a quick check on the list and find out, no, nah, you know, sorry, our firefighters are not there for you. <laughs> and so, you know, you better get out your garden hose, do the best you can because you voted wrong. And then there are all the attack ads, which most of them are. I mean, here's one that came in a few weeks ago on one of the candidates that we're voting on. And uh, what's the biggest word there? Corrupt. Well, I don't want to vote for a corrupt guy. Um, so I'd be a fool to vote for this guy. But then the next day, this flyer comes in, the mail, and uh, he's the same guy. <laughs> he's, he's changed. He's, he's not corrupt now. Now he wants to lower, you know, the, the cost of gas per gallon. Well, that doesn't sound bad. I would prefer to do that. So now what do I do? Do I vote for the corrupt version or do I vote for 
you know, lower, lower gas costs. Well, that's, that's, that's a challenge. Now, this is just one of the reasons why voter turnout tends to be pretty low, especially for the midterms. Now, they're predicting it'll be a little higher, and we'll, we'll see what happens. But for the first century Christians, politics was not just irritating. It was downright deadly. I mean, Rome was out to imprison and kill the followers of Christ. And none of these followers of Christ had a vote on the matter or a voice in the process. They couldn't do anything about it. Now, they had been taught by Jesus to pray that God's kingdom would come and that his will would be done here on earth as it is in heaven. That's the beginning of the Lord's Prayer. They've been taught to pray this. They've been praying this. But to them, it appeared that actually Rome's kingdom was advancing. It was on the rise, not God's kingdom. And then a letter arrived to seven of these first century churches from their pastor, John. John had been exiled sometime earlier from their presence and imprisoned by Rome on the prison island of Patmos. And in this letter that arrives, John tells them of a vision that he had received and that Jesus had shown him that revealed what was really going on from the perspective of heaven. Now, they could look out and they could kind of see what was happening in their world, but this was a a vision of what things look like from heaven's perspective. It was a revelation, as the letter is called, of the ten themes that are woven throughout the timeline of human history. Now, these ten themes are not new to anyone who has read the Bible. What is new is the format that they're presented in. These famous last words of the Bible are written in poetic form. And so they're, they're like paintings that God gives us of the perspective of the events of this world from heaven's viewpoint. Today we're going to turn our attention to painting number seven. It is a painting of the history of politics throughout the history of this world. And it's found in Revelation chapter 12 through 14. Now, if you've been reading through the book of Revelation, you you get to the point just before chapter 12 where it may occur to you, hey, the seventh trumpet hasn't blown yet. There there were seven trumpets that were blown in response to our prayers, and we got the sixth trumpet, and then there was a pause, kind of a parenthesis, while a couple of other visions were shown to us, a couple of other paintings were developed. The seventh trumpet has kind of been hanging back, not, not been blown yet in response to our prayers. But in verse 15 of Revelation Chapter 11, it finally shows up. We read this, The seventh angel sounded his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven which said, The kingdom of the world has become the the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. Now again, think of a first century Christian reading this letter for the first time. It sure didn't look like this was happening back then. Rome was worse than ever. And let's be honest, it doesn't look like that's happened yet. This is not the way things look now. Now, clearly, it's not as bad for us now as it was for them back in those days. But no one would would honestly be able to say, you know, the kingdom of the world has now become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. That's just not the way it is. The kingdoms of the world are, well, they're doing what they've always done. They are rising in power. They are diminishing in power. They are falling apart and being replaced by their powers. And they're all leaving in their wake more or less damage. But it turns out that there's a lot more going on behind the political struggles that mark human history than just the events and just the personalities of those political powers. 
And it turns out that the arrival of Jesus Christ on the scene of human history did in fact mark a political turning point in the world. Turns out that that is the single biggest political event that ever happened. But let's begin first by looking at the political landscape. We've got to get an overview of, of how politics looks from God's perspective. And that's what's dealt with in Revelation chapter 12, the political landscape. So here we begin by reading this in Revelation 12, 1 through 5. A great and wondrous sign appeared in the heaven, in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and a crown of twelve stars on her head. She was pregnant and cried out in pain as she was about to give birth. Then another sign appeared in heaven, an enormous red dragon with seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns on his head. His tail swept a third of the stars out of the sky and flung them to the earth. The dragon stood in front of the woman who was about to give birth so that he might devour her child the moment it was born. She gave birth to a son, a male child, who will rule all the nations with an iron scepter of power. And her child was snatched up to God and to his throne. What is this talking about? This is the Christmas story, the way heaven tells it. Now, from the perspective of earth, we're very familiar with the manger and the stable and the shepherds and the wise men and the star. We know the nativity scene. But much more was going on than just a birth in a stable in Palestine 2,000 years ago. Now, in reality, what was happening was a clash of kingdoms was beginning. An invasion of one kingdom into another kingdom. And Satan, the, the great dragon, knew from the beginning what this was. We didn't see it. The shepherds didn't know it. But he did. That's why he sought from the beginning of this pregnancy to kill this child who would be king. You see, you have to understand that by this time, Satan had already suffered a tremendous defeat. He, we are told, had led a rebellion against God, convincing a third of the angels to join him. But he was defeated. This is what's meant when it says, his tail swept a third of the stars out of the sky and flung them to earth. Together with the third of the angels, they were thrown out and flung down to the earth. Now, this is not the first time that we are learning of this celestial rebellion, this war, and this great defeat. Isaiah mentions it in Isaiah 14, verse 12. He says, How you have fallen from heaven, O morning star, son of the dawn. Satan used to be a tremendous being. You have been cast down to the earth. And Jesus himself saw this happen. He was there. So he says in Luke 10, verse 18, I saw Satan fall like lightning from the heaven. I saw it with my own eyes. But that great defeat did not end the conflict. It just changed the location from heaven to earth. The rebellion against God in heaven continued here on earth. And the focus turned to those made in the image of God. It turned to us. So Satan turned his attention to the first man and the first woman, Adam and Eve. And he tempted them. And the reason he focused his attention on them and not any other part of God's creation was because Adam and Eve were not just the first of a, a new kind of life form. They were that, but they were much more than that. They were the representative heads of this world. The ones to whom God had given the authority to rule 
We read in Genesis 1 that God gave Adam and Eve dominion over this world. That's why to this day, the human footprint on this world is the largest one, either for good or for bad. And so when Eve and then Adam decided to sin, they decided to reject what God had told them and to eat of the tree that God said that they should not eat. That may seem like a small event, but what was really taking place was that their allegiance had shifted from God, the one who created them in his image, to Satan, the one who had led the great rebellion. And when they sinned, what they were doing is they were giving their allegiance to Satan, and in turn, because this world had been given to them, they were handing over this world to Satan. And that's why Jesus refers to him as the prince of this world. He's not the king, but he runs a lot of stuff down here. He's the prince. And since then, no one has been able to break the power of his grip on this world. But then God, well, God mounted an invasion. He took on a body and was born into this world as a real man. His name was Jesus Christ. And Satan knew at that moment that his kingdom was in grave risk. Because this man from heaven, God in flesh, just might be able to live a sin-free life and defeat the chokehold that he, that Satan, had on this world. So at first he tried to kill Jesus. I mean, incited Herod, the political power of the day, to become jealous about a possible ruler that would take over his kingdom when really Jesus was going to take over Satan's kingdom, the kingdom behind all kingdoms. Herod didn't know that. Satan incited him to try to kill this baby. And Jesus was rescued, but in the process, thousands of young boys, two and under, were killed in the process. And when that didn't work, Satan waited until Jesus was at his physical weakest. Jesus fasted 40 days before he began his public ministry, and on day 40, at, at his physical weakness, weakest point, Satan approaches Jesus with temptations. He tempted Jesus in many of the same categories and ways that he attempted Adam and Eve. But this time it didn't work. Jesus didn't take the bait. It failed. So then Satan marshaled all of the political power at his disposal, which is all of the power. And he used that power, the power of the religious leaders of Israel and the power of Rome, to arrange the death of Jesus on a cross. Now the threat to his kingdom had been removed. But her child, as we were told, was snatched up to God and to his throne. That's how heaven describes Easter. He rose from the dead. And he was here long enough so that plenty of eyewitnesses saw him and could give testimony to his resurrection. And then he ascended into heaven. From our perspective, it looks like he ascended. From heaven's perspective, he was snatched. Same thing happened. Different perspective. And death was defeated. And in doing this, what had really happened is Jesus had established a new kingdom here on earth. A kingdom from heaven, but now it had a presence here on earth. Before, there wasn't a presence here of that kingdom. And so we read in Revelation 12, 10 through 11, in the verses that follow, Then I heard a loud voice in heaven say, Now have come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ. For the accuser of our brothers 
who accuses them before our God day and night has been hurled down. They overcame him by the blood of the lamb. Who's the accuser? The word for accuser is Satan. That's, that's what the name Satan means. It, it means accuser. This is what he does. And it's pretty powerful because he's right. We're sinners. But the answer to that is the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross for us. Now we can join a different kingdom. But you see, this world is all that Satan has left, and he isn't about to give it up. So in verse 17 of chapter 12, we read this. Then the dragon was enraged at the woman and went off to make war against the rest of her offspring. Who are they? Those who obey God's commandments and hold to the testimony of Jesus. Well, who's that? Well, that's me. It's a bunch of you. I mean, I, I really want to obey what God says. I don't do it perfectly, and I don't think you do it perfectly, but I, I, I really want to hold on to and live life and build life the way God says it should be built. So I, I, I obey God's commandments, and I hold to the testimony of Jesus. I mean, I, I wasn't there to see him die on the cross. I wasn't there to see him raised from the dead. So I, I've had to read the eyewitness testimonies. And I've done a lot of research, and I've come to the conclusion, they're true, they're right. So I hold to that testimony. There's a lot of people that have read the same thing, or even haven't read it, just ah, that's just, just a made-up story. But not me, and not many of you. I hold to the testimony of Jesus. So who's the war against? <gasps> it's against me. It's against you. So what does all this supernatural warfare have to do with politics? Well, the word politics comes from the Greek word polis, which means city-state. The idea is that if a group of people are going to be organized into a city or a state or a nation, there has to be a way to govern or rule that group, and that takes power. So politics, basically, is the management of power in a group. That's what politics is. Whether it's in a group of two, a marriage, you've got to figure out how are we going to make decisions. How are we? Well, that, that's a power question. Or a family. Two-year-olds think they run the show. Well, do they or don't they? That's politics. In a business, well, how are we going to decide what we're going to do and how we're going to market and what the prices are going to be? Well, that takes power to pull people together and do that. Or in a nation, it takes power to govern and rule. So we're all in politics, whether we want to be or not, whether we vote or we don't vote. We're under the rule of someone we are influenced by the rule of someone. Everything is political because power is all around us. But behind all of the political power centers of this world is one great power ruling every one of them, and that's the image in Revelation 12. It's the great dragon. This is why Jesus came as king, not just savior, but as king. This is why he kept talking over and over and over again about the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven is here, he would say. I'm here. Jesus came to challenge the rule of Satan in this world. So make no mistake, this is very political. It's about who really rules your life and who really rules my life. That's political. Now, we look out on the political landscape of our world and we see Republicans fighting with Democrats and vice versa. We see the president tweeting or the nations advancing their global agendas. And we think that's, that's pretty much all politics is. But the vision of Revelation says, no, when we look at that, 
We are looking at politics, but we're just looking at the tip of the political iceberg. Behind all of that, all of those scenes, is a great dragon pulling the levers of power. Now, he's not a Republican, and he's not a Democrat, and he's not an American. And he has one overall aim. He wields power very complexly, but there is one ultimate aim. And we've already read it, to make war against those who hold to the testimony of Jesus. He just wipe out the kingdom of heaven. That's his goal. So now there are two kingdoms to choose from in the political landscape of this world. Yes, we're all a part of different nations. Yes, we all are governed in different cities and different structures. But if you get down below the surface to the base of the iceberg, there's two basic kingdoms to choose from. The dragon or the lamb. Now you have to understand, both of those wield power very differently. The politics are very different, and it's important to understand the two as we deal with the above-the-surface political landscape. So now let's move on to first address the politics of the dragon. That's the political landscape. Now let's look at the politics of the dragon, and then we'll look at the politics of the lamb, Satan or Jesus. Now the defeated dragon in chapter 13 of Revelation summons two beasts from the underworld to help him run the show down here. There's a sea beast and there's a land beast. And these two represent the great ways that politics has, has always, human politics have always wielded power. There are the politics of force and there are politics of propaganda. Either they force you to do something or they trick you into doing something. That's just the way politics works. Convince you or force you. The first one is the force you option. This is the sea beast. This is what we read about the, this beast, Revelation 13, 1 through 2. And the dragon stood on the shore of the sea, and I saw a beast coming out of the sea. He had ten horns, seven heads with ten crowns on his horns, and on each head a blasphemous name. Blasphemy means opposed to God. The beast I saw resembled a leopard, but had feet like those of a bear and a mouth like that of a lion. The dragon gave the beast his power and his throne and great authority. That's an important sense to understand. Where did, where did the beast get the power? From the dragon. He gave the beast his power and his throne, his political base, and the authority to wield that power. So this first beast, we are told, resembles a leopard and a bear and a lion. What does this mean? Well, this, this represents the symbols of the great political powers of history. I mean, the kingdoms and nations of this world have often used powerful animals on their flags and in their seals to illustrate their power. I mean, for example, the English coat of arms is what? Three lions. It represents the power of a lion. It represents the power of the British Empire. The Congo in Africa has, has a leopard in its state seal. And what's the symbol of our great state? There we are. It's the bear. Now, why not use a kitten or a puppy on the flag? <laughs> well, because what, what is politics about? Power. Kittens and puppies are about cuteness, not power. Honestly, they're more about propaganda than they are. Now, that's another topic. Getting you to do all kinds of stuff because they're so cute. But that's not the way the nations of this world work. It's about power. 
And politics is first and foremost about that power. So it's the dragon who gave the beast his power and his throne and his great authority. Power is what you need to govern. So what happens when the dragon directs the beast under his authority to turn against those who are following Jesus? When he turns the political powers of this world in the war that he is really waging against those who follow Jesus Christ. What happens when that occurs? And this has happened throughout 2,000 years of history in different ways in different places. Well, here's what happens, we are told in verses 9 through 10. He who has an ear, let him hear. If anyone is to go into captivity, into captivity he will go. If anyone is to be killed with the sword, with the sword he will be killed. This calls for patient endurance and faithfulness on the part of the saints. The saints are those who follow Jesus Christ. So it starts out with, he who has an ear, let him hear. If you've been with us, you remember, this is Jesus' way of saying, listen up, everyone. I, I want you to really grab this. These are, these are important words. And Jesus is saying, here's what's going to happen to a bunch of you. In this war, what's going to happen is, if you don't bow before the beast of political power, and instead you declare your allegiance to Jesus, there's going to be some of you that's going to end up in captivity. You're, you're going to go to jail for this. Well, now, if it comes to that, you would certainly expect the kingdom of heaven to overrule the kingdoms of this world and bust us out of jail, right? I mean, who has more power, heaven or earth? Well, heaven, obviously. So if we're arrested, if we're, we're put in jail because of our faith in Jesus Christ, certainly heaven would intervene, right? No. Why not? Well, force is the politics of the beast, not of the lamb. So it says, into captivity, he will go. What this also means is that some of us, like our Savior, will be killed over our allegiance to him. So what are we to do in the face of such power against insignificant belief in Jesus. Well, it says this calls for patient endurance and faithfulness on the part of the saints. What this is saying is you are going to be really tempted to say, never mind, <laughs> I'm not a follower of Christ. If you're going to put me in jail, I'm no longer a Christian. If you're going to kill me, if you're going to kill my family, I'm no longer a follower of Christ. It takes a lot of, a lot of endurance and faithfulness, not breaking faith on the part of the saints. So Jesus is saying, I want you to hear this. Don't break faith with me. I'm not going to come through and break you out of jail. I'm not going to come through and save you from losing your life. You're going to have to endure. Now, honestly, in this political environment, we don't face this threat now. We deal more with beast number two, the propaganda beast. So what is this beast about? Verse 11 says, Then I saw another beast coming out of the earth, and he had two horns like a lamb, but he spoke like a dragon. What does this mean? The power of this beast rests in what he speaks, not in the sword that he carries, not in force, but in words. As I said, the two great powers or tools of politics are power and propaganda. This beast represents the latter, the propaganda, the power to deceive. And what does he look like? Well, he looks like a lamb. 
Who's the lamb? Well, throughout Scripture, Jesus is the lamb of God. And if you look at a lamb, a lamb comes up to you, do you feel threatened? No. Lambs are cute. You might reach out and pet the lamb. So the beast looks like a lamb, looks good, looks kind, looks cute. But when he opens his mouth, what comes out? Not, uh, but dragon words come out. I'm not going to try to do dragon words. I don't know what dragon words sound like. But they're not, they're something something different. So what, what language does Satan speak? He's the dragon. Looks like a lamb, talks like a dragon. Uh-oh. That's, that's a tricky thing. Satan speaks lies. Jesus called him the father of lies. He, he can talk in every language, but what's common to every word he says is it's just a lie. He lies to us personally. But again, this is talking about not just personal stuff. This is talking about politics. So a great focus of the dragon, dressed up like a lamb, is to get the kingdoms of this world speaking his words, talking dragon. He does this by deceiving the nations and the cultures of this world. And he does this with all different kinds of ideas. You, you pick a time, you pick a nation, and there's been a different lie, usually a different set of lies. But when a culture believes a lie, when a nation enshrines a lie into law, it puts tremendous pressure on those who won't go along with the lie, who hold to the testimony of Jesus and the commands of God. So verse 16 through 18, we read this. He also forced everyone, this is the lamb who's talking dragon. He also forced everyone, small and great, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on his right hand or on his forehead so that he could not, he, so that no one could buy or sell unless he had the mark, which is the name of the beast or the number of his name. Now this calls for wisdom. Previous beast calls for endurance. This guy calls for some, you got to get your head on here. This calls for wisdom. If anyone has insight, let him calculate the number of the beast, for it's man's number. His number is 666. So it's, it begins, he has also forced everyone. Well, that's the beast of power. How does the talking beast force people to do anything? How do you use words to force everyone, small and great, rich and poor, free and slave, to switch their allegiance from the true Lamb of God to the dragon. How do, you, how do you pull that off? Well, it takes a lot of slick talk. But the real power behind it is, is, is you eventually you do it economically. So how does that work? There's several steps that are involved in this. Propaganda is never, hey, I've got a lie for you. No, there's several steps. Can't be upfront about it. Here are the steps. First, you get everyone to receive a mark. What's the mark? Again, remember, this is poetic language, so don't try to figure out what the mark looks like. The question is, what does the mark sound like? Because, see, this is the beast that talks dragon talk. So what does the mark sound like? Well, the mark is any idea, any set of words, that are opposed to what God says in the, mar- in the area, whatever the matter is. That's the mark. Then, as the idea, the mark, takes over the political landscape, 
everybody becomes thoroughly indoctrinated into what you're supposed to say and what you're not supposed to say. We become marked by the correct words and the correct actions. You know, our term for this mark is politically correct. We are all told, no, 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 you don't say that. You say this. Don't use that word anymore. Use this word. And so we all grow up learning what you're supposed to say and what you better not say in order to stay in step. And th again, this isn't new to us. It, this, this has happened throughout all of political history. And what happens over time is as this mark gets prominent, people can look at our right hand for the mark. In other words, they, they can see the right hand indicates what you do. They can see what we do, whether or not we're marching in step or not with the mark. And then they, they can listen to what we talk about. They can't look into our brains, but they can just listen to what we say, and it's as if we got a mark on our forehead. You can't see behind this, this but you can you just listen to someone talk. You can see what's inside. And they, they can know whether or not we're in line with our culture. It, it's as if we have a mark on our forehead advertising our agreement or our disagreement with the mark of our culture and our nation. So at first, the pressure of not accepting this mark is a social pressure. It's a, we don't want to be out of step. We don't want to make people feel awkward. We, we don't want to be condemned. So as the mark gets traction in, in any, any culture throughout history, people begin to sign on because we, we want to be part of the group. We don't want to be left out in the cold. So it's a social pressure. But eventually, it always becomes economic, as it says here, so that no one could buy or sell unless he had the mark. So what happens eventually is those who refuse to go along with whatever the mark is, they will find themselves pushed out of the marketplace. They will be fired for not displaying the mark or talking the mark. They won't be able to get a job unless they display the mark. Their businesses won't grow unless they talk mark. Now, th this kind of thing would never happen in this great nation, right? I mean, we, we, we were founded on freedom of religion. The freedom to believe what we want to believe and to not have any pressure or economic consequences because of it. That's... that's that's free speech. That's, that's amendment number one. That would never happen here. Well, then we hear things like that happened a couple weeks ago. We learned that Atlanta agreed to a $1.2 million settlement with its former fire chief. That fire chief they fired three years ago. Why? Not because he was a bad fire chief. He's one of the great fire chiefs in our nation. In fact, he led a couple of the national fire organizations. No, he, he was fired because he wrote a small book to be used in his Baptist church, in his Sunday school class, in his Baptist church to mentor young men. Now, in that book, on just one page, he presented a biblical view of sexuality. That is not the acceptable mark of this nation now. So he was fired. And so he filed a lawsuit for wrongful termination based on 
free speech, First Amendment rights. In Atlanta, not wanting to take it the distance, well, they settled for $1.2 million. So he personally is going to be able to buy and sell plenty. You know, he's got 1.2. Well, the lawyer's probably got half of it, but, you know, 600000 or whatever. You know, he'll be okay. But the message is clear, isn't it, to everyone. I mean, just think if you're a firefighter and, and you, want, you want to rise in the ranks. You want to eventually maybe be a chief or, or maybe a captain or a lieutenant. You know what, what that said to you? You better display that mark. If you, want a, if you want any economic future in this department, you, be, you, you know the mark. You better do it. Now, I'm talking about what all of us know. All of you who work in the marketplace right now, you know what you better not say. And you know what you better say. If you want to keep your job and pay your mortgage and feed your kids, if you want to buy and sell, you better, you better display the mark. political force, the first beast, that calls for what? Patient endurance and faithfulness on the part of the saints. You know, if someone's knocking on your door and telling you to recant your Christian faith or go to jail, you just have to be faithful to Christ and go to jail. If it's going to take your life, you, you just, boy, you need to pray for help. That's going to be a tough one, but, but you need to not deny Christ. But when you're, when you're asked to display the mark, of something that the Bible doesn't say is true? And you're going to lose your job? What do you do? What does that call for? Well, that calls for wisdom. What that means is you've got to use your head. Th this, is, this is complex. It's not just a immediate, you know, you've got to figure out how do, how do I navigate this? How do I stay faithful to Christ and engaged in my culture? That, that's a challenge. You've got to figure out, first of all, what's going on. The first thing you've got to figure out is, what is this mark? So it says, if anyone has insight, go ahead and calculate the number of the beast. For it's man's number. You know, this is man's idea. His number is 666. What is that? Is that a secret code? I mean, this, this is the one verse in the, the book of Revelation that most people have heard about. And almost nobody knows what it means. I mean... In honesty, it's, it's a poetic painting, and so with poetry, there's, there's a lot of ideas, a lot of guesses on this. But let me just share with you the one that makes the most sense to me. You can take it or leave it. In the Bible, seven is the perfect number. If you've been tracking with us through the book of Revelation, how many times have we heard the number seven? Over and over. I mean, it's seven trumpets and seven seals and seven bowls, and it's seven this and seven that. It's because seven is the number of God. It's the perfect number. Three represents the three-in-one God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Three in one, the Trinity. So when you get three sevens, that's about as good as it gets in numbers. So what about three sixes? What does that mean? Well, what is six? Six is almost seven, but it's not. It's close, but it's not. And that's what's true of the best lies. The best lies aren't just bizarre statements that make no sense at all. No, the best lies are sixes. They're just really close to the truth, but there's just a slight variation. 
In fact, the best lies are the ones that have a seed of truth embedded in them. It's convincing because it's so close to the truth. It just sounds right. It feels right. But as you think about it, it's like, it's not right. It's not a 1 or a 2 or a 3. It's a 6. It may be a 6.5, but it's not a 7. It's not true. So the mark of the beast that has the power to deceive is 666. These are ideas that carry a seed of God's truth, but they're twisted down from a 7 to a 6. This is man's number. This is what we do all the time. We take something that we want, and we try to find some justification. We try to add some truth to couple it up, and just we, we aim for 6, not 7. So, for example, what does God say about love? How important is love to God? Well, it's, it's as important as it gets. It's the number one command, to love him. The number two command is to love your neighbor as yourself. So what does a beast do? Redefines love. Kind of twists what love means and turns it into what our culture now thinks love is. It's just primarily however I feel. Well, that, that's partly true because feelings really are involved in love, but that's a six. It's not a seven. Love is more than just how I feel. So it takes wisdom and insight to understand these marks and to respond to these marks. That brings us to the politics of the lamb. Very different than the politics of the beast. In the face of political power and propaganda, what can those who belong to the kingdom of God do? Revelation 14 tells us what? I mean, let's be honest. In the face of the political powers of this world, don't you feel intimidated? I do. I mean, my culture right now, our culture right now is telling me to sit down and shut up. I feel that. I can know when I'm going to be talking about some non-Mark of the Beast stuff, and I'm like, oh, man. I just want to. I just want to go to Hawaii. I don't. I don't. Isn't there a cruise leaving like today? So, and and you feel it in your world too. It's intimidating. So, what do we do? Revelation fourteen tells us what. Verse one. Then I looked, and there before me was the Lamb. Da, 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 the Lamb has arrived, standing on Mount Zion, and with him 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. Ah, it's a different mark. They're loyal to what he says. They're 777s, seven, seven, not 666s. Six, six, so we look out on the landscape of political power, and we feel small. But what this is saying, first of all, is you're not alone. You're part of the great history of the followers of Jesus Christ who in various political environments have stood up for the truth and have paid the the different prices for it. So you're not alone. The thrones that we saw in chapter 4, the four surrounding the throne of God in heaven, have been multiplied and expanded. So what started out as 12 tribes of Israel are now 144,000. But this, this is not a limited number. Those 144,000 represent a number that's too big to count. It represents everyone who's followed Jesus Christ, who's followed the the one true God of the Bible. You can look back in Revelation 7. That's where we see this number before. It it identifies the 12 tribes of Israel, 12,000 from each tribe, adds up to 144,000. In the very next verse in Revelation 7, 9, 
looks out on these 144,000 and says, you know what? What I saw before me was a great multitude that no one could number. Not 144,000, but that's just a representative number of all of us who are trying to obey God's command and hold to the testimony of Jesus Christ. So we're not alone on this. We're not alone in this place. We're not alone in history. Then we are shown three visions that represent what the Lamb and his subjects do in response to the dragon and his beasts. Vision number one, we first see the Lamb leading worship on Mount Zion. Really, that's the big power move? Armies are marching, and we're gathering to worship. That's power move number one. Yeah. Power move number two, the second vision, we see three angels proclaiming the gospel to those who live on the earth. That's the second big power move we tell people about Jesus? That doesn't feel very powerful. It feels kind of awkward sometimes. Lastly, we see Jesus gathering a tremendous harvest of people from the earth that are his. This is the summary of the politics of the Lamb. While the beast is roaming loose, killing and lying, those who follow the Lamb are, first of all, gathering in worship like this. This is the power move right here. We're gathering in worship, and then we're going out to witness. We've got now six days to go out and take advantage of the opportunities that God gives us to tell people about God and His truth. And then what happens over time? We get to see a harvest of changed lives. Now you can't, no vote can ever represent that. No army can ever do that. You, a gun can never change a person. But even in this church, as we've gathered to worship, as we've shared our faith with others, we have seen people changed. Hundreds and hundreds, thousands of people over the 30 years of our history. No army can do that. That's real power. No big power moves here. No political action groups to take on the beast directly. No, we just gather every week to remember who is really in charge and to get our lives back on track because it only takes six days to get off track, sometimes six minutes. But we do this once a week, get back on track. Then we go out to tell others the truth about God. And then from that over time comes fruit that's going to last for all of eternity. That's the politics of the Lamb. Now, in the political landscape of human history, this nation is very unique. For over 200 years, the followers of Christ have been able to pledge their allegiance to both this nation and to Jesus Christ. They haven't had to compromise their loyalty to Christ. But that may be changing. Because eventually, the dragon gets his claws on every human power base and turns it. Turns it against those who obey God's command and hold to the testimony of Jesus. I don't know what's going to happen. This is, this is the theme that's been going on throughout human history. And there's no reason to believe that we are the unique and only exception. Now, this is not a call for panic. It's a call for patient endurance, faithfulness to Christ, and wisdom as we move forward. So we worship, and we witness, and we watch God change lives. And then we keep doing it. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful for the freedom that we still have to gather and worship. There may be a day when we can't gather like this and we have to gather in smaller hidden groups. But today is not that day. And so we worship. I pray that you give us opportunity this week to open our mouths and help people understand who God is and who Jesus is, the forgiveness and love that's offered. And that we pray that you continue to bear fruit 
through us as a church, through the other churches in this community and around this nation, around this world. Father, we do pray for this Tuesday. God, we ask that you would grant the election of those who would continue to extend our great tradition of freedom, the freedom to think as we will, to say what we will. We pray for this, that we bow before you, Jesus. We're grateful for this nation, but you are the king. You are our king. And we bow before you. We pledge our allegiance to you. And we pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen.